Well, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 12 this morning. Genesis 12, and I'll say more about that in a moment. I want to just read the text right now, and, and, uh, and then I'll backfill how, why we're here. Genesis chapter 12. We'll read verse 1 through verse, the first part of verse 4. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram went as the Lord had told him. May the Lord be pleased to revive us today according to his word. Now, as we were planning for the service today, I told Patrick we should sing Father Abraham. I'm a little disappointed that didn't make it into the... If you grew up in, in uh, vacation Bible school and your right arm, left arm, and all that stuff, uh, it, you were thinking it. Uh, no, we used to, I was thinking about it, we used to sing that song in our youth group. I'm embarrassed to, to the songs that we used to sing. As youth students, you just don't know how good you've had it. Uh, the songs that you sing and the music that you've enjoyed, and even as a church, it's just, it's just very different from what, from what I grew up. I've got a river of life, and... Put your hand in the fan, and I mean it's just stupid stuff. I don't know, uh, I don't know what 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 the thoughts were there, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful for uh, a good uh, reservoir of, of of good songs and modern hymns and worship songs that, that we sing today. All right, that's no, has nothing to do with this morning. Uh, this morning we're picking picking up where we left off back in June, and so we started working our way through the book of Genesis last January in 2019, and then we took a long break uh, at the end of June and, and walked through the Apostles' Creed and uh, Advent series and some other things in the summer. But as we're getting back into Genesis, and I realize some of you were not uh, here at, when we started that, or maybe when we finished that study, and so that, that's fine, but one of the things we talked about then, and I want to reiterate now, is as we get back into Genesis 12 here, it's important to remember that the Bible's not just a collection of religious, of different religious stories. The, 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 it's, not, it's not what it's often treated as, like it's, particularly in the Old Testament, we, we kind of, there's a tendency to treat the Old Testament and, and, and other stories in the Bible as this, this kind of collection of individual, standalone, sort of moralistic fables. And so we, we many of us, if you grew up in a church where you were singing um, uh, Father Abraham, perhaps, maybe not, but your, your, your tendency was to see these stories of the Old Testament as just kind of moral stories. So David and Goliath, be courageous like David. David and Bathsheba, don't be a lustful weirdo like uh, David. And so depending on the situation and whatever story we're in, it was, we, we were looking for this moral and, and be like this person, don't be like this person. And I'm not saying there's nothing to learn from these lives and, and their examples, but that's not, the, that's not really what, what unites the Bible together. You know, the Bible is this single, seamless story about what God does to make us right with Him and, 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 and bringing us in. It's a story of, 
ruin to redemption. That's, that's the heading under which we're looking at Genesis, and it's going to lead to this glorious reign in the end. And that's where the, the Bible is moving. And, so, and the story begins, though, here in Genesis. From beginning to end, Genesis is the story of God's un, un, uh, sovereign, electing, unstoppable, relentless grace. It's His grace. We've already seen this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you were with us, we're going to continue to see this amazing grace in the remainder of the book. And we're going to do a quick overview of the remainder of the book. But it's amazing... I say that because there's this growing avalanche of sin and the resulting punishment that comes because of sin, and yet there's always more grace. We're going to see the cycle of God's people, these these patriarchs of Israel, these these heroes of the faith. They're going to make really bad mistakes, and they're going to fall, and they're going to be unfaithful to the Lord, and yet God is going to continue to be faithful to His promise because of His grace. Genesis breathes the grace of God. We've said, and so in the New Testament, Paul says, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I mean, that is a summary of the book of Genesis, and we're going to really see that in these remaining chapters. So starting here in chapter 12, we're going to be looking at kind of the major players in Israel's beginning uh, that we call them the patriarchs, and, and we're not going to be seeing flawless men who are uh, these impressive heroes for God. That's not, that's not what's going to stand out. What stands out is not their worthiness, but what stands out is the grace and faithfulness of God. It, it, over and over again, in spite of their unfaithfulness. That's, that's where the accent's going to be. And so God remains faithful to the people to whom the promises are made, even when they become the greatest threat to the fulfillment of those promises. And it's fascinating. It's relentless grace. And so there's just one hero in Genesis. There's one hero in the Bible, and that is that's God. God is the one we're to look to. And so just quick reminders for us here. The book of Genesis was written in about the 15th century B.C. by Moses. This is at the time immediately after or possibly during the Exodus as Israel's wandering in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. So Moses is writing with this particular context in mind, and it's important for us to, to note that, because uh, here's the original situation. The Israelites, they're, they're en route to the promised land, and we know they're going to, it's going to take them a while to get there, but they have, they've just escaped from Egypt by, by God's deliverance, and, and out of this polytheistic, these many gods in the Egyptian uh, culture, and the sun gods, and moon gods, and all of these temples, and all of these pyramids, this is what they've been in, in just in, in, um, inundated with while they're, while they're in, in, in Egypt. And now they're, they're going to be surrounded by other nations, other pagan nations, with all of these other, other gods around them. And so all these elaborate uh, myths about their deities and these false gods and all these man-made rituals of these nations that are trying to appease their gods and get them on, on their side. And so the Israelites... They're starting to wrestle with, with really hard questions and questions like, is, is our God, the Lord, Yahweh, is he, is he the real God? Is he the best God? Is he, is he the most powerful God? Is he the only God? And so they've, they've, again, lived among the Egyptians for so long and surrounded by now these gods of the other nations. They're, they're struggling to believe that, that the Lord was the God, the true God. Not, not intellectually. I don't mean that they... They need to be convinced and, 
in, in, in some academic way, but functionally, this was, their, this was their struggle. And we see this struggle and their tendency, this perennial tendency they have to chase after the idols of the nations around them. And so they're, they're quick to turn to these false gods and, and, and they, thinking maybe they will have the power to protect us or to rescue us or, or to provide for us. Even though the Lord is the one who made them a people, who, who, is, who has made these promises to preserve them and bless them and care for all of their needs and provide for them and, and he's rescued them out of Egypt and he's leading them now. And God has this perfect track record of faithfulness, but still there's this tendency to, to look to other, other gods, look to other, other things to, to, for, for help. And so all of the writers of the Old Testament, Moses included, is repeatedly reminding the people of God, of this one true God, the God of Israel who is the Lord. And all of these idols, they, they, they cannot match his power. And so Genesis is written with, for, for these idol-worshiping Israelites. That's the first audience. And they're, tempting, they're, they're tempted to doubt the power and the goodness of the Lord as they're in the wilderness there. Now, how does that intersect with our lives? Is this just like, oh, this is, very, this is an interesting study to, to look back and to see. That's not how we should, we should view this study in Genesis. We have the same doubts. We have the same temptations. We have the same tendencies. Um, so don't, don't view this. We talked about this before. Don't view this book as simply descriptive, like we're, we're just seeing this described, what those, those crazy unfaithful Israelites were. Like we're looking at something interesting under glass at a museum, like, ooh, that's really fascinating. That's not it. No, you are in the story. Um, this is your God. This is your world that we're seeing here. These are your temptations. This is, this is your story. This is our story. Genesis doesn't mean less to us than it did to the Israelites who first heard these words. In fact, it means more to us. These pages of this book reveal who God is and remind us above all else, He is our God. There is no God besides the God of Genesis. And we're going to behold Him here in the coming weeks. So we're, we're not here to lift up Abraham as in this week. We're not going to lift up Isaac. We're not going to lift up Jacob or Joshua. That's not the point. We're here to behold their God. See Him. I mean, Hebrews 11, we, we read from this together, and, 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 and it's good. And, and, and what's important to note is that's not, that's not a, an account of, of the faithfulness of Old Testament saints. That is, that is about their faith in God. It's a big difference. Faithfulness is focused upon us and, and our accomplishments for God. The accent, the focus, the emphasis in Scripture is on faith, which is focused on the object of faith. And, and yes, that has innumerable results in obedience and courage and boldness and, and joy and, and all of these different things, love that flow from that. But, but this, is, this, this is what we, we will see. We will see the Lord and we will, by God's grace, grow in our confidence and trust in him. Now, it's a, it would be a, a massive understatement to just call this a pivotal passage in the Bible because this is one of, if not the most significant hinge in, in the scripture. Some have called this this the single most important passage in all of the Bible. 
And I understand why they would say that. Now, I also know as a preacher, I feel like there, there are several passages that I've preached. I thought this is the most important passage because, you, you know, you're in it, you're studying it, you're preaching it. Like, it always feels like the most important passage. But I don't think that's too much of an overstatement because everything else that, that, that follows Genesis 12 flows from this promise to Abraham all the way through the end of the Bible. And so what we're going to see here. Is, is God's promises, God's purposes, they, they cannot be stopped. They cannot be thwarted. And that has huge implications for us, brothers and sisters. So let's see our God. Let's see all that he did. We're just going to, six quick uh, points this morning. These are six, six actions that God took here in, 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 in Genesis 12. And, and they should bolster our faith. They should bolster our confidence in the Lord and what he has promised. And so the first thing that we see, and this is really looking back to the end of chapter 11, which we left off in verse 9 of chapter 11 back in June. And, and I know some of you are keeping track. You probably got notes in your margins like, don't you skip that into chapter 11. I'm just going to summarize here. But the first point is this, is that God preserved. God preserved. He preserved uh, the seed of the woman. Let me, let me back up here. Genesis 1 to 11, it, it, it sets up the basic storyline of the whole Bible. And, and so just to summarize, remember, God created the world, everything in it, Genesis 1, and he made humans in his image to rule the world uh, on his behalf. But what happened? Humans chose to sin. We, we, we rebelled against God. The first man and woman made, they rebelled against God. As a consequence, the whole world is plunged into, into violence and into death. Everything spirals out of control, seemingly out of control because of sin. So that we, we see God take action. God used the flood in Genesis 6-8 and, and the scattering of humanity in the first verses of Genesis 11. He, he used those events like, kind of like levees to slow the spread of evil in the world. And those, those, those acts, the flood, the tower, they did decelerate sin, but they, they could not eradicate sin. That was, and, and God didn't, God didn't um, mean for them to be the final solution to sin and all of its consequences. That was not the purpose of them. No, what God promised was that a seed, a person, a, a descendant would come through Eve's line. This goes back to Genesis 3.15. This was the promise. This could be another one of the most important passages of the Bible. This, this, this seed would come who would, who would one day crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin once and for all. And that's, that promise was made, and, and, and the seed would restore a right relationship with God as, as sin is dealt with, as the serpent is dealt with. So to prepare for that seed to come, God preserved this line of people for himself, this family of promise. That's what we see spelled out for us in, in, in those early chapters of Genesis and in, in chapter 11. So God preserved this line in the face of Cain and his jealous murder of his brother Abel and so God provided uh, Seth and he kept the line going when it looked like it was over God preserved his seed against the, the the raging waters of the flood that wiped the whole world out and he provided this ark for Noah and his family and and one of his sons Shem that that seed would be preserved the line of promise would go on and so Genesis 11 opens with the tower of Babel and it paints this very dark hopeless Situation. This picture of this, this, this Tower of Babel is a symbol of humanity's utter rejection of God. This declaration of independence from God. 
And so the, the picture's very bleak and there's, there's just one family line that belongs to God, the, the descendants of Shem. And so at the end of, of chapter 11 or, or through chapter 11, he's, 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 he's explaining and he's giving, showing that lineage and he, and he builds this until the end of chapter 11. We see that, that this family is living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And this is a place that's up to its eyeballs in idolatry. They're, they're known as a center for worship of the moon. And God's chosen line comes down to a man named Terah, whose name means moon. And so this man we know from Joshua 24.2 is an idolater. He no doubt is worshiping the moon. And, and his name seems to have a double meaning because that, the, that his, his, his name is, is a Hebrew metaphor for the end, like we would say the caboose or something like that, the, the, the last. And so it looks like this is the end of the promise. This last link in the chain of God's promise is, is worshiping the moon. It seems like darkness is, is overwhelmed the light. There's this there's this faintest flicker of light though at the end of Genesis 11 we find out that Terah fathered Abraham and Abraham took a wife Sarah but that little little light of hope it it, it seems to be all but snuffed out when we find out at the end of chapter 11 that she's barren she can't have kids so so the only godly family, family on earth is idolatrous and They aren't going to have any more kids. So this must be the end of the line. The serpent wins. I mean, that's that's kind of the the sense that we should have at the chapter 11 ends. But but as Genesis 11 ends and that last little candle seems to be flickering out, brothers and sisters, it's not out. It's not. And and there's there's no human explanation for the survival of this line. None. There's no reason that tiny flicker of a flame shouldn't be extinguished. But God, God was preserving, preserving his promise by preserving the seed of the woman, preserving this family of promises. So Genesis 12, as it opens, it, it makes that very clear. So in the midst of this great it, it, it just darkness that's engulfed the world, God calls a man, Abram, and he tells him he's going to make a great nation of him. And a people, will, the, 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 a people who will worship and follow God. And he's going to bless the whole earth through with this knowledge of God. And that promise then, again, sets the direction for the rest of the Bible. And we know God preserved this line until Abraham's most important descendant would come, Jesus Christ. And how does the New Testament open? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament, it says that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on. And so Matthew's gospel account opens by tracing the family line of Jesus back to Abraham. This is what's, so what I want you to see, the first thing that we see here is God, God preserved. He did it. He did it. The Old, the Old Testament isn't, isn't this beautiful tapestry of, that's, that's held together by the faithfulness of people to God. It's held together by the faithfulness of God to his people. 
We don't owe the preservation of the serpent-crushing seed, Jesus Christ, to the resolve of some really good people. We owe it to the power of God that preserves that line until Christ has come. That's the emphasis here, and that's what I want us to see. This is what we saw last week in Psalm 105, that we, we looked and we gloried and, and rejoiced and praised the Lord. It's salvation is of the Lord. It's His doing. He's the one that does all of this. So first, God preserved. Second, God chose. God chose. Again, like we said last week in looking at Psalm 105, there was, there was nothing in Abram, nothing in Abram that, that, that would merit God's choosing of him out of all of the other pagans living in or, or, or anywhere in the world at the time. I mean, the emphasis isn't on, on Abram making himself choosable to God. The emphasis is on God's sovereign choice of Abram in spite of him. So verse 1, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram. This is a little prepositional phrase. That's my point right here. God, God chose him. God didn't just speak universally to whoever might happen to hear his voice and listen to him and obey him. And Abram, Abram just happened to be the one who, who heard and had ears to respond and, and decided to obey. No, it's not like Earth's PA system. You know, if anybody, if anybody can hear my voice... And you want to go to wherever I show you, then, then follow me. That's not it at all. No, God spoke to Abram. It's, it's directive. It's, it's singular. God picked him out. God chose him. It's God's initiative, God's choice. We think, now, we think Abram, Abraham, and we think, oh, this is the, one of the most important people in all of human civilization, and you would be right to say that. I mean, he, the, the three largest religions in the world, which counts for about half of the population of the world, all look to him as, as their founder. And so it's significant. Whether you're a believer or not, you recognize the significance. But, but when his story starts, he's got nothing going for him. He, he's, he's a nobody. God didn't, God didn't choose Abram like a little kid would choose a puppy at the pound, you know, looking for the cutest, sweetest, cuddliest you know healthiest little puppy and say yeah I want I want that one no God there, there was nothing inherent in Abram that would draw God to him his whole life up to this point has was honestly kind of like a like a cruel joke his name means father father and yet here he is 75 years old when the story opens and he has no kids by his barren wife Later, God changes his name to Abraham, which is how most of us know him, and, and which means father of many, father of multitudes. And yet he's still childless. It's like being, from being called daddy when you have no kids, and then they, you change, your name's changed to big daddy or something like that. <laughs> and you, get, you got no kids. It, it, it's, it's like life is mocking him. And so God found Abram, the, the, the childless father as an idolater living in a pagan culture, there's not, a, there's not even the slightest hint in the text that Abram was, was looking for God, but God was looking for him. God chose him. I know sometimes, brothers and sisters, and this may be part of your testimony, I'm not, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but you hear people say, I, I found the Lord. And, and I understand that. From our perspective, from our experience, it, it seems like we, we made this great discovery. But, but we have to understand this. Before we found the Lord, the Lord found us. He, he chose us. Salvation begins with God. 
not man. Salvation is of the Lord. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. He makes the first move. He made the first move in, 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 in sending Christ to save us. John three sixteen, the most well-known verse, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He sent his own son. It's not like humanity formed the salvation committee. So what can we do? What can we do to petition God for help? No, while we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. And so we're saved. We are his. Why? Because he's chosen us to be his. And his choice isn't based on merit. It's based upon mercy. Mercy. So God... God preserved, God chose, he showed up in that dark land of Ur, showed himself to Abram, and the course of human history was forever changed. Third, God spoke. God spoke. Now the Lord said to Abram. God, to this point, God hasn't spoken to his people since the covenant he made with Noah. And yet suddenly there's this powerful, creative, effectual word that comes again from God. Now, how did God uh, make his voice known to Abram? We're not told if it was some kind of theophany or what, how God spoke to him, but it is unmistakable. The Lord, the Lord said, the Lord spoke, and it's the same word there that, 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 that you, the same word that summoned the cosmos into existence in Genesis 1 is, is the same word now that summons Abram. And that's not a, that's not a, a, a connection we should, we should miss. That's intentional for us to see. So this isn't, this isn't God throwing some ideas out there, kind of like we do on social media, just whoever happens to listen and see just kind of if, if anybody is helped by this or some thoughts that I've been having. No, this is God speaking. God speaking is his accomplishing. His word is powerful, it's effectual, it, it does something when he speaks. He's, he's working through speaking, working through his word. His word is power. So God is, God is doing by speaking here. So God, God preserved, God, call, God chose, and God spoke. And note, Abram's not on some spiritual quest to find the voice of God. He, he's not... He's not looking to hear from the Lord. No, God initiated this communication. God spoke and things happened. We'll talk more about that. Fourth, God called. God called. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Go from your own country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's not, he's not offering some options to Abram. He's not making some suggestions. You know, here's some, here's some thoughts. Maybe you should change locations. Maybe, maybe this would be better for you. No, God is calling Abram. He's commanding Abram. He says to Abram, go. Now, as a human, Abram is a volitional being. He can choose to obey, not to obey him. That's another message for another time. But, and we'll see in verse 4, he, did, he went. He did go by faith. But, but the course of Abram's life wasn't ultimately set by Abram. It wasn't. He didn't visioneer his future. He didn't write his own script. He didn't plan out his life. No, he's living in Ur. God said to him, go. And his life was forever changed. And he went. God called and he went. 
Abraham, everyone wasn't given a final destination. It wasn't like plug this address into Waze and this is, where, this is how you'll get there and this is where you'll be and, and you look at some satellite imagery to see if it's a nice place or not. He just says, just leave it all. Go to the land that I will show you. Calvin, John Calvin paraphrased this verse this way. He says, I command you to go forth with closed eyes and forbid you to inquire where I am about to lead you until... Having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. I mean, this is what, this is what Hebrews 11, 8, we read a moment ago, is, is communicating. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Now, we're going to talk about faith in, in just a moment here. But, but note this, 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 this call of God and, and this faith to obey this call to go it's, it's not the life of faith is not blindly trying to figure out uh, life like God's got this riddle this puzzle that he's made really difficult for us and he's trying to conceal it from us and, and so the life of faith is just trying to figure it all out and kind of uh, crack the code on what God wants but that's not it at all no, it starts with God calling and saying, go, trust me. That's, that's, that's the life of faith. Faith is simply trusting God. Your ways are best. I trust your providence and, and your word is best. I trust what you say. That's, that's faith. He will provide everything we need as we trust him, as we obey him. And so God calls us by faith. And, and the, the essence of this, it's finding our safety, finding our security in him alone. That's, that's what this life of faith is. It's not a call to be, become better people or to at least appear to be more, more moral people than, than others. No, that's not it. It is God calling us to let go of everything in our hands that we're clinging to so tightly in an effort to find our identity, to find our security, to find our safety, to find our help, to find our provision, to find our hope, everything. We let go of all of those things, even seemingly good things. Your country, your family, we let go of all of that and we say, no, God, I look to you alone instead. That's what he's saying. To say, Lord, my hope is you. My confidence is you. And that's, that's and what, what, what is it? And we'll come back to this in the last point. But it's God's, it's God's call that moves him to say that. So God preserved, God chose, God spoke, God called, and then fifth, God promised he promised to bless. Now we get to the, now, now, now we're going to get in verses 2 and 3 there to the promise that everything else hinges upon. So he says, I, I, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's this Fivefold repetition of this key word here in, in these in these two verses is bless or blessing. We we un, we know this word, church. Bless barach. The blessing is baracha. We we this is this is us baracha Bible Church. I mean this is this is our word, brothers and sisters. So uh, but this this is the this is the big word, and he and he narrows the focus of the that blessing with another word, another key word in this passage, a little pronoun, you or your. And it's repeated about a dozen times in these two verses. One individual will, through one nation, bring blessing 
universally to the entire, entire world. And so look, look at how God promises to bless. There's seven features to this. He, he promises to, to, to make a great nation from Abraham. He promises to bless Abraham. He promises to make Abraham's name great. He promises that Abram, Abraham will be a blessing. He promises to bless those who bless Abraham. He promises to curse those who curse him. And finally, seventh, he promises to bless the people, all of the people of the earth, through Abraham. These seven promises. And, and, and you notice this, the, the, kind of the expanding nature of those promises. These horizons open up with, as, as you work through these promises. That you, kind of the scene begins with, with one person. This is God calling one man. The Lord said to Abram, singular person. It says, go in verse 1. Then the call expands to the Lord's promise to Abram to, Abram to make from him a nation of blessing. And then it expands even further in those last promises that, 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 that Abraham's, uh, there are going to be blessings that go to the whole earth. It's a beautiful picture. Now we're going to see next week God's actual covenant that he makes with Abraham in chapter 15. Um, and so I'm, I'm just introducing this here. It's, it's, it's only introduced here in this promise of Genesis 12. And we're going to elaborate more on this covenant next week. But all I want you to see today is that the course of human history can be traced to God's initiative in making this promise right here. This is God's, God's doing. Throughout Scripture, all of God's actions are tied back to this promise to Abram. Over and over and over and over and over. Throughout the Bible, God is reminding his people that it's because he made this promise to Abram that he will be faithful to act on their behalf on account of this promise. He is a faithful, promise-keeping God who can be trusted always and with everything. And there's just one other thing to note here. It just note, note the whole promise is full of this divine declaration as God says five times I will I will this is his doing everything promised here is assured by God himself to come to fruition not I might not I'm considering not you know I'll wait and see how how things go no I will and that's that's great that's a great help and encouragement to us isn't it what encouragement to see God's resolute commitment to keep his promise all of his promises does, does that not give you tremendous reason to hope and, and, and to find help in trusting, trusting the Lord today even in the midst of very difficult circumstances you may be walking through I mean our, our hope our, our help is not, is not in thinking I hope I hope God's in a good mood today because I messed up or I, I hope I hope these difficulties I'm going through aren't because God's really angry at me. No, my hope is what we sang earlier. We're, we're standing on the promises, standing on the promises, every promise of his word. Our hope is in the fact that God has promised. He's promised and he's promised to bless. Finally, action, final action that should bolster our trust in him is that God, God produced. He produced faith. Verse four says that so God makes this promise. He says, go. He gives him this promise. And he says, so Abram, Abram went as the Lord told him. Now, went, it's, 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 the, it's the mirror image of go in verse 1. God says, go. Abram went. 
Now, Paul has a lot to say. The New Testament has a lot to say about Abraham's faith. Passages like Romans 4, uh, 18 to 21, and where he says uh, this phrase that I love, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. That's, that's a wonderful phrase. In hope he believed against hope. This, this same idolater that we were just reading about is now changed to the point where he doesn't, doesn't waver in unbelief. That's what he goes on to say in Romans 4 there. So what is it? Is Abraham smarter than everybody else in his day? Is he, did he figure things out on his own and just decided to turn to the Lord, the same Lord that he's been rejecting all along? Maybe there's some genetic anomaly in his DNA and just makes him a little more prone to, to believe the Lord. Maybe he's just a better guy than all other people around him. What, what is it? It's God. I mean, that's, that's it. God, God spoke. Abram believed and obeyed. He was not believing God. Then God spoke to him, and something happened, and he believed God. I, I don't know. I don't know beyond that. In the wake of this, his, his barren lifelessness that was the human condition, God spoke, and it changed everything. Again, compared to Genesis 1, same word. God, God spoke. He said, let there be light. There was light. Here, that parallel. God said, go. Abraham went. There was darkness. There was nothingness in both cases. And God created something out of nothing. And there, there it was. Abraham, he didn't earn the right to have faith with God because he was more intelligent or charming or godly. Abram had faith because God spoke his word into his life. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how, how did you come to believe in the Lord? I mean, this is, this is our story, isn't it? This is why I say, this is us. If you have faith to believe God and put your trust in him, it's because he's effectually called you. God spoke and you believe. This is how Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has just what he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, so who's the hero here? Who's the one that can take credit for creating light out of darkness or faith in the midst of darkened hearts? It's God. It's God. There's no other way out of our perilous condition. There's no other person who's strong enough or loving enough or who cares enough to help. There's no other person who can make dead people live. We're not the heroes of our story. As much as we want to be, as much as we try to make ourselves out to be, as much as we act like we are, we're not. God is the one. One commentator said of, this, of Genesis 12 here, it says, inexplicably, this God speaks his powerful word directly into a situation of barrenness. This is the ground of the good news. The God, this God does not depend on any potentiality in the one addressed. The speech of God presumes nothing from the one addressed, but carries in itself all that is necessary to bring a new people in history. The power of this summoning word is without analogy. So again, this, this, is, this is not just Abram, Abraham's story. This is not just the patriarch's story. This is, this is our story. This, this moment is critical to our salvation story. 
This is God accomplishing his redemptive purposes, even for us, brothers and sisters. God has preserved, he has, he has kept, he has preserved and provided the serpent-crushing seed of the woman for you. He, he preserved it until Christ came. God chose Abraham. God chose you, Ephesians 1. God spoke a creative word to you, 2 Corinthians 4.16. God called you to himself. God kept his promise to bless you. You are the families of the earth. God produced faith in you, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And again, this, this faith, it, it comes from him, this, this finding our security in, in him alone, this trusting in him in, in spite of unknowns. It's, it's the work of God. That's not, I'm not, I don't mean that we're not, we, we, we don't believe on volitionally, but it is God's work, it owes we owe it all to God. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, even as believers, our tendency is to doubt, distrust, to waver, to wander. Um, and so our, our confidence is not in our ability to, to keep the faith. Our, our confidence is in the Lord who promised to keep us. That's what faith is. It's trusting in him. And so the rest of Genesis, again, starting next week, is going to be the cycle of repeated failure and sin. And yet, God remains faithful to keep his promise. It's relentless, relentless grace. So does trusting, does trusting God even as a believer, is it, is it a little bit overwhelming to you? Think about that. Be, be honest. Walking by faith. God says, go. and I don't know. We're going. I'm trusting that what you say is best. Because it's, it's hard to trust God like this. Especially now, we, we live in this gap between the, the, this promise and this full and final fulfillment of things yet to come. And, and so we, we struggle in that now. And so if, if you struggle with that, you're, you're not in bad shape. Um, genuine faith is supposed to be hard for us in, the sense, in this sense. that, And, and this is what I remember. remember God, God, um, God made many promises to Abram. He promised land, promised a name, promised a great name. Uh, a nation, but all of those promises, they hinged on one specific hope, that Abram would have a son. And all of it pointed forward to this son, to this particular seed. Abraham's only hope was in the son that God had promised. And that's our only hope as well. Second Corinthians one twenty: for all of the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So if you're feeling like it's, it's hard to believe, it's hard to trust, it's hard to, to not waver in, in unbelief, then and, and, and for, it may be because you're forgetting something very important. And it's that someone who's already believed and trusted perfectly for you. Christ. Jesus, the true son of promise, he, he answered the call of God. God said, go, and he went. And he left, his, he left heaven. He left the ultimate father's house to become, to be born into poverty of, of, of this fallen creation. He left the perfect heavenly country for this busted and broken country in which of humanity. He, 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 he knew nothing of sin, yet he became a sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became fatherless as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he did it. 
He lost his father so we could gain the father. He, he lost his country so that we could gain new citizenship in heaven. He became a curse so that we could become a royal priesthood. He lost everything that we might gain God. And that's why we can have hope. That's what faith is about. That's what this table is about. And we're gonna come and remember it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that uh, where we fail, Lord, you, you are faithful. We thank you that our ultimate confidence isn't in us and our, our ability to cling to you. Our, our confidence is as we simply trust in Christ and look to him. Uh, by faith, we know that Jesus' perfect trust is credited to our account. And so we, we cling to Christ, Lord. As we eat and drink in a moment, we cling to Christ as we sing, Jesus, you are, you are better than everything. Lord, we, we confess, we, we, you know the tendency of our hearts to look to other things um, for, for hope, for security, for help, for peace. But God, let me, let me let go of those things and cling to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.